LDB, 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 LDB. Good evening, LDB. I am your host, Chris Schutzer. I am joined, as always, for our podcast by our co-commissioner, Matt Starr. Matt, how you doing? Doing all right tonight. How are you, Chris? I'm, I'm doing pretty well, actually. Still on the Cape. Going to go see an Orleans Firebirds game tomorrow. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, we also, as usual, have... Uh, I should ask you, how are you doing? Sorry about that. How are you? Me? Oh, uh, I, I'm doing... Uh, I, yeah, I wasn't even ready for that question. Uh, I'm doing fine. Um, my life's a little chaotic right now, but, you know, all things considered, I'm doing okay. Uh, you are in like a, where are you right now? Is this your, your living room? No, this is like my, my office. Ah, very cool. Um, well, now I'll go back to where I very rudely didn't go. Uh, also joining us, we have our, our co-host, uh, Michael Becker. Michael, how are you doing? Doing great, fellas. How are you? I'm We're good. off to a great start. <laughs> 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 the podcast really knocking out of the park right now. <laughs> yeah, podcast equivalent of like a you know a, a number to the pitcher. Um, so and and I got to say we're again not joined by Sean, which might be to the great relief of our guest today. Today we have Jeff Jorvey. Jeff, how you doing? Hello, LDB. I'm doing good. Uh, we're glad to have you, man. Am I correct that you're probably a, at least a smidgen relieved that Sean's not here to grill you? Yeah, I mean, he's the one who knows me best in the league, so I'm sure there would have been some uh, subtle hints to our past that made that would have made me tell embarrassing stories. So uh, it's easier on me that he's not here for sure. Okay, fair enough. Oh, don't be so quick to say that. <laughs> well, I remember actually it was about two or three podcasts ago. I think actually Becker was in discussing your bachelor party or something like that. I think Star brought up the fact that I went to a bachelor party where two hours in uh, the groom to be fell off a porch and broke his arm and like three ribs and his wrist. And I spent the whole night in the emergency room. So we can get that story out of the way right out the gate. I should say that you're, you're, your dad, who is uh, in the car with you while filming this, is probably wondering what the hell we're talking about right now. <laughs> I think he knows because I then six weeks later officiated that wedding. Um, so I think I've told him about that before. That is pretty awesome, but also horrible. <laughs> um, well, all right. So, Jorvi, we're going to start with some pretty layup questions, some tame stuff, like, you know, get to know right. kind of style questions. Uh, can you just, because I, I, I think, I like to think of our league as a little bit of a web where star is at the center of the web. Um, there's a, a number of other folks that I think are sort of, uh, more towards the middle. I think you could say that Sean was more towards the middle due to his Harvard links, which brought in, you know, the Jeff and the VJ and Jack Murphy back in the day. And you're obviously connected through Sean, but um, I think it's really good just to make sure that folks know how you got into the league. So how, how did you first hear about LDB? Um, and tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, so I got into LDB through Sean. Um, he and I went to graduate school together starting in 2010, I think. 
through 2012. And he and I ended up being uh, problem set partners in econometrics, a number of classes together. Uh, so we got to know each other pretty well at the time. And uh, yeah, I don't remember exactly how it came up that he invited me in um, or whose spot I took now that I think about it. Um, but I believe it was uh, the year after he graduated, uh, 20, the 2013 season, uh, that I took over a team. And at that point, I had also met Jeff Hartcourt because he and, uh, and Sean were good friends. Then I must say that it took me a couple of years to even figure out what was going on in this league. Um, the amount of attention, I still don't think I'd probably give it the uh, necessary amount of attention, but things like the, uh, the double draft and uh, how to navigate the regular season, free agent pickups, uh, that was a long learning process. I'm almost of the opinion that there should be like an LDB onboarding mechanism where you sit down when you take over a team uh, and you get a packet and, uh, you know, start and maybe Ian's the HR guy and he walks you through all the things that you're going to need to do and know uh, in order to be an owner. So without that support, it took me a little bit while. We need a video, a video training. A video training would be really good. I hope there's not a drug test. Uh, might, you might have to fail the drug test in order to be an owner. <laughs> Good point. And I, Jeremy, I think I met you, I don't know, somewhere in that. Sometime, I met you before you joined LDB. I remember Sean introducing me to you and saying, like, this guy would be great for the league or something at some point in time. Yeah, we went to trivia uh, together, I think, and did horribly. That sounds right. It was definitely at a bar. So that sounds, that sounds accurate. Yeah, you probably saw me just failing miserably at trivia and thought, here's another sucker for the league to take it, that I could take advantage of. I like that metaphor that Schutzer brought up about Matt being in the center of the web because it sort of recalls a spider bringing, bringing prey into his web and just waiting to suck the blood out of him. <laughs> Trading teenagers for major league ready players. <laughs> Oh man, uh, that, that's I'll a, let this one get out. That's a, that's a little harsh, but I think I think that your new your new name is the Spiders, Matt. I think you have to be the, the Spiders. Um, so all right, Jervy, tell us a little bit more about your life. Like your, I know here are things I know. I know you're married. I know you have two children. I know you were originally a Seattle Mariners fan, and now you're sort of stuck in the middle of maybe you're a White Sox fan. Um, I kind of want to hear more about that in a minute, but you can put a pin in that one. Um, did I get all those details correct? Yeah, that's right. So I got married in 2015. We have two kids, Beatrice, who's two and a half, and Lars, who's now almost five months old. Um, my wife, Kim, and I live in Brooklyn, just uh, I think a couple miles away of Ian and his wife, Kim, who's also in Crown Heights, we're in, we're in Bed-Stuy. Um, although I don't think our two Kims have ever met. Um, I moved from D.C., where I met Sean and Star and, and Harcourt, uh, to New York in 2015 or so. Um, started working uh, in nonprofits, mostly for criminal justice organizations. And then I quit my job. Um, you know, luckily, we were lucky enough that 
my wife can support the family and she loves to work. So um, I quit my job in 2018 and um, I'm a full-time parent and that's really great. So I get to spend a lot of time with my kids. My wife goes back to work after five months maternity leave uh, next Monday. So I'm, I have my ax to the grindstone again uh, coming up. Uh, that is awesome. And I, I, the, the, the full-time dad parent is a thing that makes me very happy in this universe. Um, it's like, it's us moving in the right direction, I feel. Um, so that's, that's a cool thing. Yeah. I have found it to be probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Um, and so, yeah, in that sense, we're incredibly fortunate where we can get by, uh, you know, what my wife makes. And I'm, I work part-time, so I'm, I'm contributing in, in some fashion, but, um, yeah, no, we're very fortunate that we get to spend so much time with our kids. I think it's, it's rare. Awesome, man. Um, can, can I, can I ask you about, uh, I don't know how much you want to divulge, but about your, your wife's family's connection to the White Sox. Sure. Yeah. So my wife owns about 65 basis points in the White Sox. Her dad bought 1.3% of the team or something way back when Reinsdorf created a, a limited partnerships to, to uh, fill out his ownership bid uh, in the eighties. Uh, my wife's dad Sheldon I think at the time paid like in this sort of like three to four hundred thousand dollar neighborhood for his stake and you know and I think at the time the valuation for the White Sox in the 80s was around 20 million dollars um, so needless to say that that investment has done really well uh, baseball teams have become a lot more valuable since then so um, every year we go to uh, spring training and stay at the same, at the Wigwam uh, in Scottsdale. Well, it's not in Scottsdale. I forget the actual name part of their Arizona where it is. Uh, but we stay, you know, we get on on Thursday night. There's like, uh, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I'll remember the name later on. It'll come to me and I'll, I'll interject with it. Uh, Anyway, stay at the Wigwam. We go. We show up Thursday night. Go to games Friday, Saturday. There's like an owners meeting with with Rick Hahn and Reinsdorf, and uh, uh, I haven't been since new management took over. Since Larusa has been there, which has been so funny to listen to my brother-in-law talk about Larusa. Uh, obviously, we didn't have a meeting with COVID last year, and this year uh, I uh, wasn't able to go. And, so yeah, we, we, we get to partake a little bit in, in some of the ownership events. I know I sent out an email and I'll just reiterate that now uh, where we're out in, uh, in Arizona every March around, right around when the LDB draft is. And if anyone is ever interested in, in being out there and coming to games and, and making it something that we do as LDB owners, you should be in touch with me and I can help you make it out. I'm coming, I'm coming, no doubt Great. about it. Great. Well, this is like an awesome little segue just to think a little bit about, I mean, I have to tell you something that I've never admitted fully to the podcast, but I think folks know that I was a Cardinals fan uh, from like age two. 
and that had to do with the the birds on the bat my mom tells the story that because everyone in my family has their own team i picked the one with the prettiest uniform as a child um the racism in st louis really made me uncomfortable as an adult and i can't kick them i'd say at this point i'm 51 percent cardinal fan and 49% Red Sox fan. But like talking about that transition has been very difficult for me. Like, I don't know how quite to express it to folks. Like, how would you say at this juncture you find your allegiance? Like when the the Mariners play the White Sox? I mean, it's tough to be a Mariners fan. We haven't made the playoffs in 20 years. And I think one of the most frustrating things is it's not necessarily for lack of trying. They've you know, spent some money a couple times and tried to put a good team together around um, Hernandez and, and Ichiro, but it just never worked out. You know, the Richie Sexton signing was really bad. Uh, you know, we went out and got Cliff Lee one year and then traded him midseason. The Mariners have just never, they've made a run at it as sort of a mid-market team two or three times in the, in the last 20 years and just fallen on their face. Uh, I think it's particularly galling because Oakland, seems to be able to make the playoffs whenever they want uh, on a smaller budget. So, um, yeah, it's it's tough. It's not, you know, for I understand your point about the racism in St. Louis and, and maybe that turning you off as a fan, not wanting to see yourself as the same as those other fans. I don't think that's necessarily true about my experience with the Mariners. I would say... It's just that the ownership group doesn't particularly seem interested in winning um, in any real way. Like they'll make it go at it every once in a while to make a show, but it doesn't ever seem like um, we're on the path to sustainable long-term success. Now that could change. You know, there's, there's a couple of big name prospects in the pipeline for the Mariners and Logan Gilbert certainly looks like he might pay off, but um, it, it's just frustrating. It's especially frustrating when, you know, your brother-in-law is a White Sox fan and you see what the Sox have done with their rebuild, although the injuries have really derailed it this season. Uh, but they've put together a, a good product through, um, you know, some smart long-term contracts, making really good trades when they have current value for future value, punting a couple seasons to be competitive in the long term. And the Mariners have just never really put that together. It seems like we're always competing for the number three spot in the AL West since the Astros joined. And that's just a really frustrating thing to experience as a fan. I think that makes hey, sense. Despite, go ahead, go ahead. Despite start. all the injuries, I was just say, despite all the injuries, the White Sox, I think, still have the best record in the AL right now. Yeah, no, it's, they've done, they've done really well. And it's, it, it's just frustrating to, to see a team. Yeah. A, another team that you follow very closely experience some success in a way that your team hasn't in recent memory. I'll tell you, Tony LaRusso is really rounding them into shape. <laughs> he got a lot of flack. I don't know. I think, you know, he gave a lot of at-bats to like Jake Lamb and Billy Ham- Hamilton early in the year. And the Hamilton at-bats really seemed to pay off. I don't know. I, it's, he seems like an awful person and like an old school manager, but not everything he does has been terrible. Um, obviously, I you know I'd rather be with the White Sox are than where the Mariners are. What is that all? Fair enough. All right, so just feet to the fire because I sort of started here and I want to know when the Mariners are playing the White Sox, you are rooting for the Mariners, definitely. Okay, 
Um, and is there any? We went. We actually just took Lars to his first baseball game. We were in uh, Chicago visiting um, my mother-in-law, and uh, took him to his first game, which was a Mariners win. And we we spent a lot of time rubbing it in their faces. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So, okay, fair enough. Um, I'm glad I got that sorted out because I, I actually would have guessed it was the other way around. Um, okay, so are you ready for a little fun activity? I'm putting you completely on the spot for this. Okay, I'm not ready, but I'll do it. All right, so, you know, we, we, like, to, we like to sort of bring everybody um, in and, and, and do something that's a little specific to you. I think you're the only mustached member of LDB at this time. Um, so for our listeners who cannot see you, uh, I think you have a very good mustache. It's, it's robust. Which celebrity would you say, it can be from any time at any point, would you say you're trying to model the most? I know you're your own man, but like for our listeners, what are we going for here? I mean, if I think the, I think for me, the model mustache is always going to be Tom Selleck. I don't think there's a better mustache out there. He is, uh, I mean, he doesn't seem like a great guy from what I've heard about him. But he's always had a phenomenal mustache. I think I, that's sort of where I thought you were going to go. And I, that's actually, I feel like, what you have a little bit. Um, Mine's not as bushy as, as Selex. He always had great hair that I just have, you know, I was cursed with sort of thin, that my father's hair as he sits next to me. <laughs> um, so I, you know, he really hamstrung my acting career by not endowing me with the, with the full Selleck package. But um but no, that's what I'm good. When I think about my mustache, that's that's my model. Okay. Question number two about mustaches. Are you familiar with the children's book about the good guy mustache and the bad guy mustache? No. All right. Uh, it, basically, the, the concept is that a baby is born with a mustache and the parents don't know uh, what this means. And so they ask the doctor and the doctor says, well, you're gonna have to wait and see whether your kid has a good guy mustache or a bad guy mustache. Mm -hmm. um, so I am, I'm, and I was hoping that you as a dad might've seen the book and now you're gonna have to go out and get it. I might have to send it to okay. you through, through Amazon. If you give me your address, I will do that. Um, it's not particularly great reading, but um, <laughs> it, it, it is a good children's book. So it looks uh, like a good guy mustache to me. Yeah, I think you have a good guy mustache, uh, but I'm hopeful that you can tell us what are what are in your eyes. What are the mustaches that make you cringe? Um, are there are there any models that you're just like, no, I'm not doing that? Um, so I don't anything pencil thin to me is pretty cringy. Like the John Waters is just like an absolutely a no go. Um, I think, you know, every, every once in a while I get uh, a bit of like an upturn uh, curl on my mustache. And so I can't say I hate that. I don't think it looks the best on me. Um, handlebars, I cannot go for. Uh, I can't grow anything sort of in between my mustache and my beard. So maybe it's just jealousy, uh, which I will admit. And I think if I could... I think, yeah, I think if the best mustaches are the, are the uh, I don't remember the golfer's name, but his nickname. He had an incredible, uh, Craig Stadler, uh, he had an incredible sort of like combed down, bushy mustache. I've always liked those. I'll never be able to grow one. Anything thin, I think, is, is right out 
Wax, I think, is something that you should avoid at all costs. Um, if you're waxing your mustache, it just feels like you're really trying too hard. Uh, it should be something that you can sort of disdain, I think, almost, and still it looks fairly good. Uh, I don't know if that well, answers if your question. If you're living in bed you probably can't walk a block down the street without seeing a bad mustache. Yeah, my new, the mustache is kind of out in New York, I would say. Um, oh, and next? also, well, there are a lot of great mustaches in my neighborhood. We live in a, uh, Bed-Stuy is like historically a middle-class black church-going community. And so there are a lot of like middle-aged, like black male mustaches in, in Bed-Stuy, which all, almost all of which are fantastic. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm the one who's having the audio issue here. It could be me. Um, and yeah, I'm getting a little bit, but I'm still tracking. I'm still tracking. Okay. Uh, my apologies then for interrupting that. It might have been my internet. Um, yeah, but no. In in New York, you're right. You see, you sort of see all kinds. I think my sense is that the mustache has uh, moved out of uh, Williamsburg and is now probably in places like Philadelphia. Maybe even stars seeing some in in DC. It's I think it's migrating south a little bit. This yeah, this can, isn't can like uh, yeah, this isn't like um, Europe where we get uh, to see True Runnings like three years after it comes out or Cool Runnings after it comes out. Right. I, I mean, it, it's um, you know, the, I, I will say that the New York to DC fashion trends, and I, I, we're definitely seeing it with the mustache. It, it's it's been very clear. Like I spent a lot of time in New York you know, over the last 15 years. And you always see the fashion trends start in New York and then migrate. By the time they hit DC, New York is way past it. So, you know, it's funny to hear that mustaches are gone there while they're, they're very much happening in DC right now. Well, maybe the trend of good restaurants in New York will eventually hit, the, hit DC as well. I want to know what the next New York trend is because I want to get ahead of it. I'm thinking it might be like a, a thigh tattoo. I, ooh. <laughs> you should definitely get ahead of that trend, Becker. Yeah, so when I'm wearing my five-inch inseam shorts, you get like half of an eagle peeking out. That sounds good to I me. Think I think it, Yeah, you should get one of those... Um, you should get the tattoo of the garter belt with a pistol tucked into it for your oh, yes, five-inch inseams. Yes. I'm sorry. That's I, pretty classy. I have to take us back a second. Did you just say you want to wear shorts and have half an eagle peeking out of your shorts? Because taken out of context. You heard me. That's you heard me. <laughs> I just have bought a couple. I think you're right on with this five-inch inseam thing, though, Becker. Oh, I just dude. bought some five-inch inseam Patagonia yes. baggies, and they are treating me right. Yes, yes, Becker, I'm all about the five inch inseam game. Becker, seven inches too too much, <laughs> too much, man. Don't even talk to me about nine inches. We're right, yeah. we're, we're in the middle school territory with nine. I I, <laughs> I, I can't say I I am not fully appreciating these the, this short male shorts trend that I'm seeing. It's it's not it's not for me. Or anyway, I think you look good in short shorts, Star. Don't sell yourself short, literally. Um, yeah, you've got those long, long, uh, long legs. Yeah, I got some big thighs, though. I don't, know, I don't know if anyone wants to see that. No, that's the key, man. That's the key. That you is show key. Them off. 
Your your I, thighs are ripe for a uh, a tattoo. Think about it. Short shorts and a tattoo. I just can't wait for my wife after this is done to be like, so how'd it go today? And I'll be like, uh, we talked about thigh tattoos, like and short shorts. Yeah, I don't know. know. <laughs> maybe this is how um, we get female listeners. Maybe, maybe, or maybe this is how we scare them <laughs> further away. <laughs> Hello, ladies. Uh, so, all right, I'm going to wrap up the mustache conversation before I take us to one more Jorvi specific conversation. Is there any sports mustache, uh, any time in history that you, that you think is truly outstanding you want us to think about right now? For me, I think about catch, Catfish uh, Hunter, whatever his name was. He was, he had the best. Yeah, I always liked Ricky Henderson's mustache. I thought it suited him really well. He was kind of a dirtbag. He had a dirtbag mustache. Uh, so for me, that's sort of the best baseball mustache. I think Mariner's mustache, Ken Griffey had a like small mustache for a little while, which I thought looked really good. His dad rocked a mustache for a while, which looked really good. And then Vince Coleman, who was on the Mariners for a little while, he had a mustache and that looked good as well. So there've been some classic Mariner mustaches that, that I can get behind. I think most of the Cardinals from the eighties had mustaches. I feel like the eighties baseball thing was, was a mustache time. And maybe, you know, it might be a solution for pitchers. I know we're going to talk about this later, but if you can get a little mustache wax in there, get that on the ball, that might solve a problem for you. <laughs> oh, it's funny. I, I would have thought Don Mattingly would have come up, but he didn't. So I, I mean, guess I hate <laughs> the Yankees. I can't support the Yankees. Yeah, but the Yankees are the ones that have the neat mustache, right? Like, that's, like, part of their – you're allowed to do Yeah, this. but they made Quint Frazier cut his hair, which is, like, a total Samson and Delilah situation. Like, he was going to be a superstar, and then they made him cut the red mop, and now he's has vertigo or something. It's just <laughs> – it's, it's almost certainly related, too. Yeah. His swag's all can, 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 can I just – can I just throw out a, a give a shout out to to Randy Dobnak who definitely has the best mustache in baseball today. Just saying. Yeah, Randy Johnson had a bad mustache for a little while too. I remember on the Mariners, he was he was always good. Anyway, Randy Dobnak does have a great mustache the other day. That's right. Who was the Brewers closer who had a great John Ax, Axford? Yeah, he had a great mustache. All right, well, you see, now we've, we've, we spent some good time on stashes here, and I, I, I like that. Um, Jorvi, I'm going to say that I think the hardest part about joining this league is figuring out the trade scene. And uh, one of the things that we have not talked a ton about on this cast is uh, the different trade strategies that everyone's got. I mean, we've talked about trades. Um, the reason I'm doing it today with you is that you said something that stuck with me. Um, and something that I think we see from many of our owners, myself included, there was, I think it was my first or second season and I was a seller and you were in it that year. And I was trying to sell you something. And I asked for, uh, one of your lesser prospects. And you said to me at the time, something to the effect of you like your own guys way too much because you've been following them. Uh, and as a result, you know, that the trade is fair, but you're not going to make it because you want to keep following them. Um, and do you, do you recall saying this to me? Yeah, I think I still suffer from that to a great extent. Oh, tell us more then. Well, I mean, actually, I was thinking about this when you sent out some of the, the podcast notes and uh, was looking it up. And I guess in, in, in 
in economics is known as the, the endowment effect. But basically, when you have something, you tend to overvalue it. And you might not, if you didn't have it, you might not necessarily even go out and get it. Um, but I think particularly the, you know, one of the things that leads me to that is how much work goes into the double uh, A draft in LDB. It's one of the highest risk reward periods of the season. Um, and if you want it to pay off, you need to do a lot of research and talk yourself into why this guy over that guy, you know, as an example, um, I think it was two seasons ago, two or three seasons ago, I took Riley Green over Bobby Witt Jr. And to this day, despite how well-regarded Bobby Witt Jr. is, if you asked me to trade him one for one for Riley Green, I would tell you no, because I already had that option. I looked at their swings. I thought to myself, you know what? I just don't like, I don't think Witt's swing is going to translate to the majors. I think Riley Green is going to be a standout athlete. I'm going to choose him. And it's hard to escape that mentally, even if you know that it might be holding you back. Uh, um, and in some ways, it's led to some success for me, you know, holding on to both Glasnow and Giolito uh, through their kind of rough patches with uh, Padres and Nationals, um, respectively. Uh, not Padres, Pirates and Nationals. Um, you know, and they've, you know, despite the, the Glasnow injury and, and Giolito has not been quite as good this season, you know, those two, those two guys have really paid off. And I, you, it's easy to think about those payoffs as opposed to like all of the terrible picks like Eddie Julio Rodriguez or um, who's the guy I took when he was 14, who's now just terrible. Uh, I can't Maton. even remember his Maton. name. Maton. Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, yeah. oh God. I, I only I, uh, I don't Kevin remember Maton. him because of you. I don't remember him because of you. I remember him because he's become a punchline. But before yeah. we, you know, why don't we give you a little bit of the credit you deserve? I think you, at the time, based on how he was regarded, you took Acuna, like out of order. I think, like, it, I raised my eyebrows when you did. Um, so what was that about at the time? What did you see that that maybe I didn't yet? I mean, I've always been, and I think it's paid off when I've taken like toolsy guys as opposed to, I, I had a couple drafts where I took, you know, there's a draft I took Tyler O'Neill and Sean Newcomb in the first round thinking, and um, Nick Williams thinking like, okay, my window is a year from now. These guys are, you know, double A, triple A guys. Their window is a year or two from now they're well-regarded prospects. I'm going to, it might be a little bit above slot, but um, I'm going to take them now and know that when these other guys, Glasnow and Giolito are coming up, they're going to be coming up too. My team will be set. And every time I've tried to do that, anticipate some sort of window, maybe not take the best tools. He has the most talented player available. I've kind of gotten burned. Um, and so with Acuna, I just like saw someone who, if it all clicked, was going to be an absolute monster. And, um, you know, that's, that's been true for obviously other, other guys who it hasn't clicked for in the past as well. Um, but yeah, I think increasingly that's what I, what I think of in the double A draft, um, guys, really good athletes who, if they put it together, are going to be superstars and have the tools to, to potentially put it together. I think, you know, Tim Anderson is another guy who fit that description. I took him a little bit above slot, I think, at the time. But 
he'd only played three or four years of professional baseball and was just an incredible athlete. And that's, you know, that's turned out to be a really good pick for me. So um, I think draft strategy wise, I've sort of focused on that. I haven't done great drafting pitchers recently, but I had, you know, I have some arms who could be good. Hunter Green is now seemingly averaging over hundred miles an hour. So that could be okay for me, but I think mostly now what I look for in the double A draft is just physical ability um, that if it, if it gets put together and they're in the off chance that you've got a superstar. All right. So then to ship this back towards trading and actually star, did you want to say something before or did that moment pass? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I just wanted to say about the, the Riley green Bobby Witt thing. It helps that they're both fucking great. Uh, you know, I think, mean, I think if Riley green didn't look like one of the best prospects in baseball right now, in it, like along with wit, you know, that you might feel differently, but it, I think it helps that he has been uh, just as, just as good as wit has been basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, why don't we just take a quick moment then? Like, how would you describe your, your trading strategy? Do you have one? Or are you just like, when you need something, you're going to figure it out? Like, what? I mean, this is one of the things I think in particular in LDB where I struggle. I think I'm very, in general, conservative when it comes to making moves um, in the same way that I overvalue, you know, players that I've drafted. And, you know, this season is a great example. I put together a team that sort of on paper, I felt like I was very happy with. And out of the gate, there were a lot of slow starts from people on my team. And so part of it is is kind of the statistician in me that um, maybe doesn't update my priors frequently enough. You know, I think there'll be some mean reversion. These guys will be good again. And. But also part of it is just, you know, I, I tend to talk like I have a strong strategy going into the draft usually um, and I try to follow it. And then I, you know, I try to see it through for a little while. And oftentimes, uh, you know, by week five or six, if it's not clicking, I might have missed on some of these midseason pickups that have been valuable to other teams or, you know, particularly starting pitchers or relievers who are, you um, you know, pitching above their projections or they found something new. Um, I tend to be really slow to respond to that. So I think for trades as well, I have a hard time and, you know, updating my priors on some of these guys. Like when you, when you talk to other owners and they say, well, you know, this guy's having a great season, you know, putting together career numbers. I'm just not going to value that player as highly as, as that owner does. And so it's very hard for me to work, work a trade out with, with others in that way. I think the only big trade I've ever done uh, was the sort of story for Hanager, Ryu, uh, Bundy trade, you know, where I gave up the best player, but got value in return. And that has probably been a wash. Um, But that made sense to me on paper. You know, I was giving up a good player and getting some good players in return and it kind of, I had Tim Anderson behind stories, so I could afford maybe to give up um, give up a shortstop. I've tried, you know, I've engaged with a number of people about outfield depth this season, and I just, for some reason, mentally can never make it happen. I think it's mostly my problem. Uh, I talked to Star quite a bit over Gchat, just, you know, thinking through trades, talking about what I need, knowing that I could go out there and get it. 
But if I feel like I'm overpaying, even if I know that I have the ability to overpay and it might help my team right now, I have a really hard time making myself do that. So you're like the anti-Ian. Like if, if we create a spectrum of the owners in our league, we've got you probably on one end and I don't think you're alone there. And then, and then we've got Ian on the other where I think Ian is, is, you know, our resident, like I've got five bucks in my pocket and you've got six bananas. Like, let's make a deal. Like, I, I mean, I've just literally pulled that out of my, you know what, but that's the point. Like Ian is willing to do anything at any time with anyone. Um, Star, you're pretty close to that, but you're not quite Ian level, I would say. Um, would you agree? Yeah, Ian, Ian's on an island all, all, all on his own. I, I, I at least I feel like I trade with a purpose. I think sometimes Ian trades just because he likes trading. <laughs> but I mean, it does, it, it's interesting. Like, this is one way that I think all fantasy leagues, and this is not just about LDB. It, you kind of have to feel it out. You have to figure out who you can trade with, who you have a good rapport with, um, who's easy to trade with, who's hard to trade with, um, who likes to trade, who doesn't like to trade. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about bringing Ryan on for a similar reason. I want to know when Ryan trades, why? And when he doesn't, why? Um, like what that's about. Um, Jorvi, well, I think you... there's, an... ahead, there's another thing that's happening here, at least with me. And... Which is, and I and I think about this in the context of just the variety of different owners we have in LDB. But for me, the goal of playing fantasy baseball, certainly part of it is winning the league. It's always more fun when you when your team is good. But I also just I like take some aesthetic pleasure in playing fantasy baseball. It helps me follow the game. It keeps me more invested. And so, you know, I think for owners who take more satisfaction in being successful in a pure fantasy sense, the wins and losses of their team, the championship banners that are flying, you know, uh, in the hall of the hood rats um, or the, as the rebranded powers of Matthew Starr, uh, those owners are, are, you know, tend to, I think, uh, make a lot more uh now for now trades or now for future value trades. They're uh, better at making their team better in the season because, you know, winning and, and generating victories year on year is part of what makes them really appreciate the league. Uh, part of what I really appreciate the league is just how much I follow baseball, how much I come to like the players on my team every season. Um, and, you know, just being a part in general of something as in-depth as LDB. So even if I'm not, even if I know I'm at a disadvantage and with my trade strategy, it provides me some aesthetic pleasure being able to play, uh, you know, fantasy baseball in the way I want to play and still be competitive sometimes. I absolutely love this conversation. I just have to say, I, I like for me personally, I feel like I, I have a much greater sense of who you are and like how this comes to be. Um, if I am going to razz you just a smidgen, like two years ago, I think you had a, a clear seller and you did not sell. And now I think I understand better why. Like, do you remember this one? Yeah, I mean, there was a couple I, you know, I sort of fell off the map a little bit. I think it was three or four seasons ago. Um, you know, I put a lot of initially put a lot of uh, time and energy into LDP, LDB, um, participation, you know, sort of generating the, the clap and projections and building out a whole projection system. And I think I just like overshot my 
um, ability to participate in the level of commitment that I brought to the league. And, you know, just wasn't in a good place personally, uh, needed to take a step back a little bit and didn't communicate that as well to the league as I, as I should have probably. Um, and so have come back from that, I think, with a little bit more of a, uh, I remember exactly the season you're talking about. I was trying to sell at the deadline and I think I sent a trade. I was on San Juan Island. I sent a trade out to the league before the deadline, but it hadn't been finalized in CBS before the deadline and star was like, Nope, <laughs> no can do. And so I remember that, but also like that doesn't bother me all that much. Like, I think if I, you know, I don't, and maybe it's just because I'm, I'm a Mariners fan, the sort of um, big cyclical ownership pattern that you see among some owners in the league where, you know, it's like the classic Jeff Harcourt, this first week doesn't go well. And he, is you know it's a fire sale um he's ready to to sell the farm and then the years that it's going good uh, or he's he's uh he wants to buy the farm in the years it's going good he's ready to sell it he's gonna you know move all of his assets to try to build a winner um i just can't i don't know for some reason i can't play the game that way um and so if i don't make a deadline deal like this season and, you know, maybe I'll sneak into the playoffs. Maybe like a couple of seasons back, Mark will somehow like manage his way into the playoffs despite selling uh, in general. Uh, that won't bother me, I think, too much um, because I never want to feel as if I'm giving up on guys that later on down the down the line I'm going to kick myself about. Um, and those are all the guys that that people in the league want. I hear you. you know, they're not knocking on the door to get Clint Frazier. Yeah. Uh, I have a question for Jorvi. Go for it, Becker. Mm -hmm. Jorvi, uh, how'd you get so cool? <laughs> I don't know what that means. I feel like you're like a notable cool guy. Oh. Like in, the, in the hierarchy and spectrum of our league, there's like you as the cool guy, and then there's everybody else. Oh, I and don't I know say about this that. Maybe with, just because I live in respect. New York. No, you know what? The, the, the deference and the, the, the brush off is part of the cool guy act, I think. I No, it's not an act. I, I didn't mean to suggest it's an act, but um, you are notably cool. And for someone who's kind of like nervous and twitchy, I'd like to know what you're doing. I mean, I think I've just been very fortunate in my life. Um, I've gotten to do a lot of cool things, not necessarily because, you know, I... Uh, work the hardest for it or, or had the natural talent for it you know sometimes you just get lucky I went I got you know my first job in in um, out of college I got through my mom's hairdresser's sister as the token white guy in the sales office of a Chinese hotel in Shanghai um, and I was the only white person in the whole company it was the um, hotel arm of an iron and steel conglomerate and the hotel was used to wine and dine the Shanghainese fire department which dictated the uh, building inspections for all of the businesses uh, or that fell under this conglomerate and so I just drank a lot of terrible red wine with Chinese fire officials and um, you know during that time met met people wrote my way into a job with the economist and started playing ultimate frisbee and traveled all over asia playing ultimate frisbee and things like that 
you know, I wouldn't say I was ever really trying to make them happen. They just sort of like, you know, happened to happened. Um, and I was sort of, I think, adventurous enough to, to say yes and, and, or, or maybe just too lazy to say no. And uh, maybe that goes a long way as well. I listen, I, I, we've gone a little long in this segment and I think Becker needs to put the Eagle back in his shorts, but other than that, like, I think it was worth it. Cause we've, we've learned a lot about you and I think it's, it's, it's good stuff. And I feel like we could have just delved in even more on that, but then we would talk about baseball, not at all today, which I think we all want to do a little bit. So with, with permission, I'm going to move us along. Cause we, we did run long on that initial segment for good reason. Um, so, uh, Becker, do you want to talk about the challenges of the waiver wire right now? Like, are, is that something we want to do today? Do we want to save it? Like, I'm ready to go. How do you feel? We, we can talk about it today. No, I, I suggested we talk about um, the waiver wire at this point in the season because it's especially bleak. Uh, I think we're in kind of a, a, a strange part where some of the best prospects have been promoted. Um, some of the best unowned prospects have been uh, promoted and subsequently owned. And so you are, if you're in need of anything, you're left with like Nick Maton and, and, and John Birdie, right? And, and so you, you have to make some tough choices about uh, guys who don't have definitive roles or guys that you think can play, um, but you know, maybe they strike out too much or they have some serious flaws. And so I, I, this is, this is all personal because like, I'm, I'm always um, surveying the waiver wire, but I think pickups are really easy in the first, maybe four or five weeks. And then they get subsequently tougher and tougher and tougher. I was wondering if you guys had similar experiences uh, to, to myself, because right now I, I look around and it's like, if you don't have what you need on your team, it's going to be really difficult to fill unless there's some revelation you get really lucky on. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it's funny. It's funny that you brought this up because I was just talking to Brophy today. I was like, man, it is bleak. Like I wanted a pitcher and I was just like, what the yeah. fuck? Yeah. Brophy picked up the one pitcher that I was mildly interested in. No, actually I think Jorby picked up somebody today who was also kind of interesting, but Brophy picked up Thomas Hatch yesterday who I think started was well, scheduled to start for the Blue Jays but they got rained out and then Jeremy picked up Tukey Toussaint but those are the kind of guys that like we're, we're like speculating on these kind of like retread guys who busted their first time around in the majors and like maybe there's still some upside but that's kind of like what you're left with right now is, and do you, you know, know maybe, what Tukey did today no, no what went, did he do Six and two-thirds innings, three hits, two walks, five Ks, one earned run, 18 MGS. Now, he is on your bench. I did not start him, but that bodes well. <laughs> oh, man. But, no, it, it is it, – bleak is exactly the word that, that I was using today um, in surveying the landscape. And I check in maybe every, like, three or four days, certainly when there's a need, but sometimes when there's not a need just to see – what is out there and I feel like it's gotten it's we're, we're at the dregs and I don't know if that changes between now and week 21 or 22 or whatever it is I think it absolutely will change I think I think this is actually part of it is figuring out the the ups and downs of an MLB season and like when the sellers sell like say you're the Minnesota Twins right Minnesota Twins 
let's say they trade Buxton. I don't think it's going to happen, but if they do, uh, you know, who's going to, who's going to get those at bats? Like that's, right. that's where this stuff happens. I think there's like, there are these moments where like, maybe there are players that we don't know yet. No one's heard of them yet. Um, and they come up. And I think the reason that's actually part of why the season has been so wild is that after missing all of last year, there's been a lot of like, let's see what sticks in the major leagues this year, which has been really fun to monitor on the wire. It's actually why Becker, I think you've had so many hits is like, you've been able to, to get guys that no one had heard of before or no one expected to, to contribute. So I don't know. I think there's, there's ups and downs and we're at that time of the season right now where we're waiting for the sellers to sell, but as soon as it happens, there will be a reinvigoration of the market. Um, and, and, and I'll say, I, I think something with the, the LDB trade deadline too, that'll help. I think people add players and drop potentially good players onto free agency, uh, which will create a more robust market. I mean, like, you know, I think there are teams right now, if they make a trade for, you know, a couple of players, they're going to have their, their entire roster is full of guys who should be owned in LDB. And so someone will want to pick up the guys that they dropped as a result of this trade. I think some of this also comes down to like how you find guys too. Right. Um, and that's a really good point. Yeah. Right. Like, I feel like if, if your way of finding guys is waiting for them to pop statistically in, in the majors, then yeah, it's pretty bleak. Um, if your way of finding guys is, uh, you know, having Brophy's level of knowledge of the twins double a system, then, you know, you, you probably know exactly what to do right now. And that's why Brophy's Brophy. Um, and I feel like that's what we talked about a little bit last time too. So, um, the worst place to be, I I think. I just point out, I just wanted to point out that Brophy has, has, uh, added Thomas Hatch three different times this season. (laughs) (laughs) Thomas Hatch. It's like me what and how we play for guys. Blue Jays. Come on. There you go. I feel like this, this, this podcast today is about children's books because uh, we love you. Mr. Hatch is one of my all time favorite children's books. And Jervy, if you, if you don't have that one yet, you got to get that one. That's a, that's a number one. Best we're, a, we're a Seuss family. Primarily. We mostly do Seuss in our households. So. Uh, you you got to get Despite on his recent cancellation. Lady. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say about the waiver wire and, and maybe this is just anecdotal, but you know, I often look at the waiver wire and think, you know, if there's something about making a trade, like I could drop David Peralta who's been not great for a while, but is the, but he gets at bats in the Diamondback system and like any given week he could, he could be okay. Is that necessarily true of, or any more true for someone that I pick up on the wire at this point? I don't know. It's just so hard uh, to um, differentiate whether you're doing something because you have a good reason, you're picking someone up because they represent a clear upgrade, or you're just picking someone up because you need to make a change. Um, And again, maybe this is just the like statistician in me thinking about it and not recognizing, you know, what a, a player might be trending upwards or trending downwards, but it just seems particularly, you know, the guys, someone gets injured, the person who's coming up to replace them is in LDB terms, like probably a below replacement level player. You know, there just aren't that many guys who are going to contribute for your team in a way that makes sense. Like if they're not putting up counting stats and they're hurting you for OBP and OPS, then what are they doing for you? 
that's the situation I faced with Miguel Sano. And that, that, was, that was difficult to give up Miguel Sano, um, despite how terribly he's played. He was an S4. He came with RFA rights. Uh, but ultimately, and I had thought about dropping Miguel Sano for maybe like three weeks, but ultimately it came down to, like, what, what are we doing? He's not playing right. for his real team. He's not playing for this fake team that I'm running. So would I rather have Miguel Sano or Jace Peterson or somebody else that I can just churn through on the bench? And what I found out was that he was more of an, just like an anchor and dead weight. Um, and I really value having those last like two or three spots uh, of guys that you can just churn through. So if somebody's having a burner, you can get them, you can drop them and you can get them again and you can get them again in the case of Thomas Hatch. So yeah, it, it's difficult because there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of potential for, um, I guess, seller's regret or buyer's remorse and vice versa. Well, and there's one more uh, thing, Becker, which is this, ask me why Steven Strasburg's still on my roster. Uh, why is he still on your roster? Because if I drop him, somebody else is going to pick him up and HGH him next year. Yeah, well, he threw a bullpen yesterday, so. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. He's not going to do anything this year, but if I drop him, somebody will speculate. So I think but there's – But don't a- you have to – Don't you? Ha- doesn't he have to pitch for your team to HTH him? I he think will so, throw right? one more inning this year. He will throw one more inning. Yeah, maybe. It oh, will be bad, sure. but he'll he's, do it. Oh, he's going we'll, we'll to talk, – we'll talk trades. See, I, I feel <laughs> similar to Ian. I'll trade with anybody anytime. Yeah. Um, all right. I, I actually think we should pivot based on how long we've gone. Um, folks, we want to talk about the uh, post sticky substance world. So far, we've only had one guy get suspended unless I missed something. Um, and I, I, I want to have that discussion, but I don't want to rush it. Um, so unless Jorvi's going to wildly object, I think we should move on. Um, and, and we'll cover that next week. Is that okay with folks? That's okay. Jorvi, do you have any thoughts about the sticky substances since we're going to cut you out of the conversation? I mean, only that, you know, when I heard Glasnow say that he attributed his injury to the change in, in the substances, I, it made me incredibly angry um, how sort of ham-fisted the whole uh, approach of MLB has been. But I don't have any thoughts speculating about whether it's actually changing things for pitchers. Did any of you see just real quick the New York Times article on this that came out yesterday? No. New York Times I saw the headline. I did not read it. Yeah, so the New York, New York Times basically published what we all have already been hearing, which is like, you know, who are the top ten pitchers who've actually seen uh, a spin rate change, and are we seeing a difference in their results? It was a, it was a really quick article. It was not like an in depth thing. Um, but Star, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to say just uh, it's been kind of fascinating because I have two of the guys on my roster who I think have had some of the most some of the biggest impacts to their spin rate in terms of in, in Garrett Cole and Corbin Burns who have been like at the top of all of these lists. It's been really interesting to watch these guys, um, and like you know you, they, there was a there was a struggle period right after they clearly started enforcing forcing this. Both these guys had a couple of starts where they just looked off and they have clearly just figured out like these guys are good enough where they're just like, you know what, we, we, we can pitch, we'll just pitch differently. Like we don't need, you know, I don't, Corbin Burns, I don't need my, 
you know, lead, lead, league leading spin rate cutter. I don't need to throw that 60% of the time. I got four other pitches. You know, we'll make it work. And Garrett Cole's done something very similar. They've just kind of changed the way they pitched. It's been really interesting to follow that. You know, something doesn't work as well as it used to. Well, like we're good enough to <laughs> we're good enough to work to deal with that and navigate this without it. Just took a little bit of time. There have also been some, and I think we can save this for next time, where they have not rebounded, right? Like, and that that might just be the ups and downs of a season, and it might also be that they have lost their toy. Um, so I don't know, um, but anyway. So let's do our LDB section. Obviously, since the last time we spoke, we had an all-star weekend. Uh, we've had five days of uh, a very long week where Star's offense is punching my offense in the face. And uh, I don't think that we have anything wildly new. But one thing we didn't do last week was, are we ready to pronounce any deaths? We kind of did that by saying the whole league is dead, unless you were one of the teams in the playoffs. Um, but it is our weekly segment. So anyone want to say anything new about what we're seeing this week, uh, the trends of the league? I'd like to pronounce a team still alive. Go for it. It is Sean Crehand and the, and the wind. The wind are still alive. And um, yeah, I, I, know, I know Sean, when he listens to this, is going to hopefully appreciate this, but He's in an interesting position where he's got to figure out whether to sell or maybe not buy, but hold tight. And I personally, I think he holds tight and takes a playoff spot. So you're talking to the, one of the guys that it has to be scared about that in Jorvi right now. Um, but Sean, Sean is actually taking it to Dubner right now. Like it's, uh, it's, it's actually one of those where when you look at the pitching stats, it's likely going to hold up because Sean can just sit down. Like Sean doesn't have to do anything the rest of the way. It's a nice so, position to be in. Yeah. Like in the long weeks when you know you've got it on lockdown this early is, is pretty intense. Um, so that's how I felt yeah, until I, Brady Singer dropped a minus 40 MGS uh, a few days ago. Yeah, I was, I'm definitely ready to pronounce my pitching dead, um, which has been sort of a long, long time coming for me. Um, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to see a way forward for my team that isn't just sort of eking into the playoffs and, and potentially losing in the first round without me. I don't think we're quite good enough, particularly in the starting pitching department to make a real run for it without selling off a lot of my future value, which I'm just sort of inherently going to be unwilling to do. So I think maybe my team's maybe not dead, but zombified. We're in a zombie state, shuffling into the playoffs. Yeah. Zombies can be dangerous. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little afraid of your zombie, actually. <laughs> I think, Under the right circumstances. I think as you were saying that, I was like, and everything he's saying is also true about my team. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we should rename Iron and Oil uh the zombie division i don't know um remember when everyone was really scared of our division this year yeah that was a time that was i, I felt really good about at, the, at least the projections thought my team was good yeah. you know I'll always have that yeah um i mean it, it is it is admittedly pretty tough to lose you know probably the best hitter the best fantasy hitter in baseball and then a top 10 pitcher to boot for the season that's tough to navigate for anybody <laughs> Yeah. 
All right. Um, the one other segment that I had just on what's been going on uh, is the team that you least want to play in the playoffs. I figure since we have four likely playoff teams here, we can all give an answer. Well, it's, uh, I, I will go last. So I take the, the, I won't take the, the low hanging fruit. Um, it'd be fun if we all named somebody different, but I'm just sort of curious. Star, you want to go first? Who are you? Who do you least want to play? Tough. I, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm going to give some kudos to Becker, but there's a team construction thing here that I think is really fascinating and something that Brophy and I were talking about with the new playoff structure um, and, and the way that, you know, you can, it's 30 innings. Becker's like insane bullpen could really carry a lot, even more weight than they're already carrying right now in the playoffs. And that's going to make any playoff matchup against his team tough. And, you know, I, I've got, I've got the edge on starting pitching, but you know, I, that, Becker can roll nine strong relievers out and that's, that's, you know, our offenses, I think are pretty evenly matched and it be a toss up. And so I, I, at least among the union teams, I think the, the tones of the team that I do not want to face right now, because I think they are, they don't, there's a potential matchup problem there because of the way that Becker's team is structured. You stole my answer and I will pivot, but I'm going forth. Um, no, tell I, me more about how you're afraid of the tones. <laughs> I think Star just said it. I, I don't it's, it's it's really about how I think your team will be enhanced. Um, your strategy will get better, um, and I don't think we can say that about everybody. So, Jorvi, who are you most afraid of? Yeah, I mean, not to flatter the the uh, the two of the co-hosts of this podcast too much, but I think, uh, you know, I've always in iron and oil always struggled most against Schutzer. And I think even our most recent matchup at the beginning of the season, I felt like he outmanaged me. Uh, even when my pitching was going well, I don't have a lot of confidence heading into that matchup. And then uh, you star took away, you know, this is nothing really to do with the team necessarily i just feel like uh in my only chance at a championship star took it away from me and i feel like you know i will always have that a slight inferiority complex when managing against him so you two would be my answers for teams that i don't want to see in the playoffs fair enough um i appreciate the praise uh becker say in the union i definitely don't want to face Dubner. Uh, I, I've long been a fan of his team and I'm really scared of his offense, especially now with Juan Soto just mashing. Um, I think just by reference to the moves that I made, like I, I, I really want to win the league because, or at least the, uh, the union, because I, I don't want to face two teams. I want that double buy. Um, let me put it that way, because I'm not sure if I get out of uh, the union without it. Um, but then overall, I'd say Brophy. Like, if I'm lucky enough to get to the championship, I hope it's not against Brophy because I think he has the best team. I mean, we, we've pretty much named all the teams, so I'm going to go the other direction and say the team I least want to play in the playoffs is Ray because that means something went horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe however, in the McQueenies bracket. Yeah, that, that would, that's what it would mean. 
but uh, you know, I will I will also just throw Brophy some love. I think he's the clear favorite right now in federal. Um, and uh, I think Brophy's got some holes. I'm I, like of all the teams that I'm watching going into the deadline. His team is the one that I'm most curious. And we talked a little bit about this last time about around his pitching. Looks like Darvish will be fine. I don't know about Kershaw. That one is like a little, a little scarier, but it's more his hitting. His hitting is really legit. It's really good with a couple gaping holes that he's just been okay with. Like his OBP is not that great. Um, and like his counting stats are not that great. He hits a ton of home runs. Um, so I'll be curious to see if he tries to add somebody who can help him with that. Um, but right now I think he's, he's the team to beat, uh, in federal and yeah, I think we covered it. So, yeah, uh, I think he's looking for a bat. Uh, I think, yeah, I think there may be some other owners who can attest to that. He and I have, you know, I think he's, he's trying to get somebody who can help that offense a little bit. So I think he recognizes that, um, yeah, I think I think with him, with Kers- if, if Kershaw is okay, he's fine on the pitching side. But I think you're right. I think the offense, despite you know making third in in offensive roto right now, is maybe not as good as it could be. Um, if you could just get like one more bat, one more you know guy who could get on base. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, I think we've covered a lot. We heard a lot about Jorvi. Jorvi, I hope you're going to come back. Um. Do we have any final thoughts? No final thoughts. I'll come back whenever you ask. I'm always happy to, to chat. Um, this has been super fun. So thanks for inviting me. I, I know I didn't give a lot of fantasy baseball insight and talk quite a bit about myself. But um, yeah, always happy to come on and, and, um, and shoot the breeze with all of you. LDB provides a lot of positive value in my life. So uh, this, this podcast has been um, something I really look forward to every week. So thanks to the three of you and to Sean as well for making it something um, that the rest of us get to benefit from. Thank you for saying that. And honestly, I, I see it as a huge benefit that we did have the discussion about you and who you are today. Oh, yeah. um, I, I, like when we were planning this out and this is all Becker, I gotta, I gotta throw Becker the love on this. The goal of connecting all of us a little bit better given how much time we spend on this and, and knowing people personally I think that's what it's all about. So I appreciate you being honest and open and, and uh, I, I look forward to uh, more conversations like that. So um, anyway, Star, uh, Becker, any final thoughts? Are we good? I'm going to grow a mustache. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> I, that my mustache, mustache, yeah, my mustache model is Jorvi. <laughs> that's why I want to model I, I did it once. It didn't go very well. It did not go well. So I will not be growing a mustache. Well, this is the second time now that we've needed a way to take what we talk about on the cast and be able to show images. I, I think we need like a tiny website where we can post photos. I did locate the photo uh, of the of the woman at my wedding as an example. And I, I, I want to show, but I just don't know where to put it. Um, and I think people need to see Jorvi's Wicked Stack. So. You can, we can put it into our new LDB chat. Uh, as a file in the associated Google Drive. <laughs> the SharePoint go. page. All right, guys. It's been fun. Um, I'll see you all next week. Thanks again, guys. Yeah, good talking to you all. Take Thanks care, for, everyone. Thanks for coming yep. on, Jorvi. Bye-bye.
Baseball!